Hello, and welcome to the Psycho Podcast, where we uncover alternative styles of relationships and different ways to approach therapy through alternative modalities. I am your host, Margot Underwood, and I want to remind everyone that I do this based off of donations. If you would like to donate, please send to the Venmo, the Psycho Podcast. All right, let's jump into it. Today, we're joined by Nicholas Mayo, who has what I like to call alphabet soup after his name. He has a master's in psychology. He's a board certified behavior analyst. He's a certified sex therapist, and he's currently working on his master's in marriage and family therapy with an LGBTQIA plus family system certification. He also operates a private telehealth practice called Empowered, a center for human sexuality where he provides um, dating advice for people on the spectrum. He does sexual behavior analysis and consultations. He provides sex therapy and even in-home parties. So let's welcome Nicholas. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today, Nicholas. How are you doing today? I'm well, thank you. How are you? (laughs) Thank you for having me, by the way. I'm good. Coffee feels good. <laughs> oh yeah, that's always a good thing. Um, so I wanted to start off with a little bit um you introducing yourself, kind of your background. What brought you to this this place in time right now? Sure. Um so I uh got started in sexuality education long before I got started in applied behavior analysis. Um, I started sexuality education in 2003. Um, I was trained by the Gay Lesbian Straight Education Network, uh, GLSEN, um, did a 36-hour training, um, and then started providing sex ed to other high schoolers around Alaska and Hawaii, um, opened up uh, GSAs, um, Gay Straight Alliances, throughout those states. Um, and then I went into college and it was just kind of one of those things of like, what do you do to pay for college? Uh, so I started working at an adult store. Um, it just made sense. I had the sex ed background. Um, while I was there, started recognizing that like people were kind of using me as their, uh, <laughs> as their therapist a little bit, um, coming in, asking for a lot of advice, sharing a lot more than maybe uh, you would expect people to share. Um, and so it got me interested in psychology, um, got my master's in psych. Um, and then I did my first placement, uh, in a disability services, uh, uh, specifically, um, working with applied behavior analysis. And when I was, um, at that first placement, uh, just really recognized that there was a lot of things being done wrong. Uh, or being done unethically, sometimes illegally, um, in the name of applied behavior analysis. And I, at first, was just like, this ABA thing is horrible. I don't want to be involved in this ABA thing. Um, But then I started recognizing that in order to create change, you sometimes have to get into a system. Um, And so I decided I was going to generate that change. Um, Went to a different site, uh, completed a practicum there, and um, while I was there, told them my background. And so even while I was in practicum, I was allowed to focus somewhat on sexuality and sexual behavior. 
Um, got to do that for another couple of years after uh, getting my um, actual board certificate. And then started my own company, Empowered, where I could focus completely on sexuality and sexual behavior, um, behaviors related towards um, gender uh, and behaviors that have been shaped um, by constructs like normativity, um, trying to help people break away from those things and assisting uh, everything from individuals um, who just want help um, to people who are court mandated um, because of committing sexual offenses um, to working with couples. So I'm doing a lot of different work. Really cool. And how long has your, how long have you been doing Empowered? Uh, we, um, gosh, wow, it's 2021. Um, so we are just wrapping up our fifth year. Okay, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> um, so what exactly kind of, okay, you said you work with all different kinds mm -hmm. of populations, but what is your primary focus? Um, oh my goodness. I'm really, I'm a, I'm a jack of all trades. Um, primary focus, uh, I would say right now is more on systemic level trainings, um, of people, um, who are making decisions, um, or are directly behavior analysts for people with intellectual disabilities and autism, um, doing a lot of that. And then, um, in my direct client work, um, working a lot with like uh, different people who have intersections um, between uh, sexual minority status, uh, uh, kink identities, and or disabilities. So cool. some of my people um, have uh, neurotypical standing, um, but still offer them the same level of assistance and, and care that I would give anybody else. Right. Uh, what originally brought you or interested you in working with these populations with oh, disabled um, and kink and right so uh because those are not always seen as two similar populations <laughs> right. but they actually intersect quite a bit um so in terms of uh of kink i've always been interested i think that's a very interesting field um and more and more kink is being looked at in terms of its mental health uh uh, components. And so it's just a very interesting area. Um, always looking at um, what can cause a client to not need therapy, right? Um, we should not be career therapists. We shouldn't be looking at trying to get a client in and having them in forever. Um, right. The goal of therapy should always be to get the client to be able to succeed on their own um, so that you, they don't need therapy forever. Um, so mm. uh, it's great when your client likes you, um, but at the same time, we got to be looking at trying to get this client out and on their own. So um, in regard to that, just really uh, kind of looking at, um, at building up uh, these kind of outside skills for people with, uh, with the disabilities and giving them, um, giving them this sort of, not just a skill set, but also looking at opportunity and making sure mm -hmm. that they have opportunities to enact on those skill sets. I got really interested in uh, in disability because I was around it and I was seeing how people who had kinks were being looked at as people with problem behavior. Um, mm. People who had identities that were not normative being looked at as being problematic. Um, 
looking at even just uh, standardized assessments. Um, you look at the VBMAP, um, the ABLES, the AFLES, um, a lot of it is gendered. Um, there are different norms in there, sometimes even different scores. You score a boy differently than you score a girl on different responses. Um, wow. And so just looking at like these different standards, um, very interesting mm -hmm. and always based if you look at the research um, you're looking at heterosexual white upper middle class to upper class um, mm -hmm. so how valid is that research for uh, the majority of the clients we're actually serving right uh, so can you just define what ABA is for the listeners who don't know what applied behavior analysis focuses on of course um, so applied behavior analysis uh, is its own um, very kind of separate subfield within psychology. Um, there's a whole thing of like, we're behavior analysts, we're not psychologists. Um, but it's, <laughs> it's more of a, um, something I want to note is that uh, behavior analysis is a very limited scope of practice in and of itself. Um, but behavior analysts can have additional scopes on top of that. Um, so behavior analysis is purely behavioral health. It's not seen as mental health, even though it falls under the mental health umbrella. Um, so uh, in behavior analysis, there's no actual training in psychotherapy. There's no training in, um, in systems and in, uh, in a lot of the different things that traditional therapists learn about. Um, in behavior analysis, we focus very strictly on um, the principles of behavior um, and the seven dimensions of ABA, um, get a cab. So everything's got to be generalizable, effective, technological, mm -hmm. uh, applied. Um, mm -hmm. It's got to be uh, conceptually systematic. Um, everything has to be uh, uh, analyzed, obviously, we're mm. behavior analysts, um, <laughs> and everything has to be behavioral. Um, so if it fits those those uh, seven dimensions um, and you're sticking with the pillars of ABA, you're making sure that things are parsimonious or simple, um, that everything is, um, is being very much backed um, so that it is going to be very effective for this individual, um, you're really, you're you're doing applied behavior analysis when you are making sure to adhere to those things. You're doing graphic displays of data. You're checking in and making sure that the client's progress is not just the client saying they feel better, but also tangible evidence that the client is doing mm -hmm. better. Um, yeah. I think sometimes in ABA, we forget to check in on the feel side. <laughs> sometimes we just look at the data. Uh, uh, so it's, it's important to make sure that we get both. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so ABA and sex therapy, like they're, they're both focused on behavior, mm -hmm. right? I mean, can you explain what sex therapy is and how that would like integrate into your ABA practice? So something I want to note is that I do have to keep the two very separate. Um, the BACB mm -hmm. in 2016 did issue a statement that says that behavior analysts are not sex therapists and you're not allowed to practice sex therapy under a behavior analyst credential. Um, so we want to make absolutely sure to really separate the two. Um, mm -hmm. So there are behavioral sides to sex therapy, um, and some of those behavioral elements can be worked into an ABA framework. Um, but when I do that, I call that sexual behavior analysis, not sex mm -hmm. therapy. Um, so things like, um, you know, doing uh, genograms and looking at, um, at delving into family of origin and 
working with the the different people in the system and and all of these different things that I can do in sex therapy. Not really going to do that as much in sexual ABA. Um, so when I'm doing uh, ABA. I still want to have that systemic approach and look at the different people in the system who can reinforce or um, or punish the uh, behaviors so that we can have shaping, um, we can have extinction, and we can have something else reinforced in its place. Um, but I'm not mm-hmm. going in and being like, "Hey, so you know, let's let's talk about uh, where this feeling might have come from and how it trickled down through your family um, and those kinds of things." Um, also. Some of the things that I do in sex therapy um, can get more didactic um, and we're not requiring like direct responding or, uh, or application in the moment. Um, we check in in sex therapy to see how they're applying and generalizing, but we also aren't there physically to watch them have their sex. Um, mm-hmm. So there's no like behavioral <laughs> observation. Uh, so there's definitely some differences between the two, but um, things like... Uh, uh, sensate focus, which is a, a common behavioral practice within um, sex therapy, um, taking that, making it a little bit more technological um, and conceptually systematic and starting to mm-hmm. work that into an ABA framework is something that I'm looking at, um, trying to mm-hmm. trying to figure out how I can work that a little better. Um, and then I do a lot of, in my sexual ABA, um, a lot of ACT training um, that's specific to addressing sexual impulse or sexual anxiety. Okay. Okay. Um, so for neurotypical people who come to you for sex therapy, why, why would someone who, why would someone even reach out for sex therapy in the first place? Really? Okay. Yeah. Um, so, uh, tightening, um, or clamping, uh, vaginal muscles or anal muscles when attempting penetration, Mm -hmm. um, having uh, various touch-related trauma responses. I've got, um, even in my uh, sex therapy, sometimes um, I'll take on a client with like autism who has uh, sensory issues. Um, Mm -hmm. And so just kind of noting like um, that we can address that on the therapy side, um, not always just the ABA side. Um, Mm -hmm. But getting in there, um, also working with um, uh, a lot of... um, penile related anxiety, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, um, delayed ejaculation, uh, uh, inability to get or maintain an erection. Um, so we see a lot of that coming through in sex therapy. Um, and then also trust issues. So mm-hmm. like not being, uh, able to really let go and just be free in the bedroom. Um, uh, mm-hmm. sometimes there's also stigma and shame that we work through in sex therapy. Um, and then definitely, uh, gender related, um, so helping um, individuals uh, who um, are going through transition uh, or are just mm-hmm. like trying to understand gender and sexual and, and orientation fluidity. Um, and then uh, also um, on my sex therapy side, working a lot with um, some of the heavier kinks. Yeah. I definitely want to hear more about the kink side of things. Um <laughs> I'm sure that I would benefit from a therapist. It, tell me if I'm right. They recently just took off uh, sadomasochism or just sadism from the DSM-5, like mental health yes. diseases. So paraphilias, um, para- paraphilic disorder, um, 
has been separated from just paraphilia. Um, so paraphilias okay. are fetishes and kinks. Uh, previously, all fetishes and kinks were seen as like, this must have to do with some sort of trauma response. Like there must've been something bad in your childhood and that's why you're kinky now as an adult. And um, mm -hmm. a lot of this comes back to like Freudian psychoanalytic uh, and then like combining that with some, some Ericksonian wow. like learning theory and just all these different things. Um, but if we look more at like where we're at currently, the idea is that really um, there's paraphilic disorder, and then people have their fetishes or their paraphilias and the disorder mm -hmm. um, in the DSM, it comes down to, you know, if, is it illegal? Um, you know, does it involve children, animals or rape? Because in, in, in those cases, <laughs> we're probably worthy of an intervention. <laughs> um, but then uh, also, is it causing you distress? Um, is it causing, uh, you know, distress mm -hmm. like financially, uh, emotionally, uh, in other relationships in your life? Um, and do you feel like you have no control over it? Like you're, you're compulsively driven to do it. Um, and so right. that's really where it starts to become disorder. But sadomasochism is not in there as, as something that can be diagnosed because unless you feel like it's causing you distress and you have no control over it and you're stuck being mm -hmm. a, a masochist or a sadist, um, then you could potentially get, get assistance but the assistance would be more for um, developing behavioral control and recognizing that, like, you know, this doesn't have power over you if you don't give it power over you. Right. That's cool. Um, so I want to now get into, well, first I want to hear about is something, at least one accomplishment in the field that you're recognized for. I think, the sexual behavior analyst would kind of be a part of that. They aren't, are you blazing that field right now? Um, so <laughs> I, I did coin the term uh, sexual behavior analysis. Um, I've been calling it that since 2013. Um, and that term is taking off. Like for instance, right now, um, the first ever mm -hmm. sex and ABA conference will be happening in January and right in the middle banner, it says sexual behavior analysis. And I was like, that's me. Um, so that was exciting. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, <laughs> I'm not the one who set up the, uh, the conference. Actually, it's one of my former employees who, uh, who worked to set that up. But um, that's something that I would say um, has been pretty big is that like I started the first ever sexuality and ABA center um, right. that, that had never been done. Um, and so we did that with Empowered and um, – We've had practicum students come through Empowered and already owning their own uh, practices or moving high up in other um, practices. And then people who have come through Empowered um, as employees who are now becoming um, you know, consultants and subject matter experts in sexuality. Um, so in a way, um, Empowered became kind of a very quickly uh, a, a little hub for uh, yeah. sexual ABA. I love that. Do do people need to, what kind of training do you need to be to be a sexual behavior analyst? Oh, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> I actually, I give training specific to uh, competency in sexual behavior analysis. Um, so uh, what we kind of came up with, um, so we hosted these uh, internal conferences on sexual behavior analysis at Empowered. Um, for, uh, 
for sexual behavior analysts, um, meaning our staff and our practicum students. Um, and then this year we were going to open it up um, and make it a national conference. And so one of my employees went ahead and did that with the Sex ABA conference. Yeah. Um, so as we were doing these more mini versions of that, um, we were calling them a line. Um, and so the goal was to like align our practices and, and develop this as a subfield. And um, so we kind of came up with some minimum standards that we felt would be really important. Um, and so looking at, you know, the, the BACB ethical code, um, looking at uh, the ethical code from ASECT, <clears throat> which is the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors and Therapists, um, and really getting an idea there of like, okay, so if that's the accrediting body of those fields, what are their minimum standards for those fields? Um, mm. And let's combine those standards with what the BACB says about competency. So we did mm. that and really came up with the idea that you would have to have um, education, training, and supervision um, mm. in sexual behavior and sexuality. Um, and you would have to have um, the minimum uh, ASECT requirements excuse me, which are um, 90 clock hours of instruction um, in each of the core knowledge areas that ASECT has uh, delineated. And there's quite a few of them. Um, I, I want to say it's like A through like P or Q. Um, there's a lot, a lot of different core knowledge areas. Um, so we'd want to make sure that we have all of that because in order to address sexuality, you want to be able to address it comprehensively and without bringing your values to the table um, right. because we're supposed to be relying on scientific knowledge, not our personal values or faith. That's the ethical code 1.01, um, reliance mm -hmm. on scientific knowledge. Mm -hmm. Are you the only person offering this kind of training? Um, no. Uh, so I'm one of the few. Um, and then mm -hmm. uh, I'm offering it um, in a package that's different than anyone else's. Um, but uh, currently, my former employees are also offering um, this type of training as well. Um, and mm -hmm. I think we're all kind of trying to figure out as like a, a growing field kind of where where each of our place will be in that. Um, the uh, special interest group for ABAI for sexual behavior research and practice <clears throat> does have a list of different um, people who are competent in different areas of sexuality um, and who to reach out for, for different issues or populations. Um, okay. So that's a pretty cool resource. Um, the, uh, the sex ABA conference in January, January 30th um, will also be having, I think at 6 PM that night, um, a uh, panel discussion about consultants and supervision and, and how to, who to consult and who to reach out to about different things. The bare minimum. I mean, you got to start teaching about feelings, um, empathy, basic social skills, um, using things like the peers curriculum to kind of get clients to where they need to be for just socializing. Um, but uh, we kind of then move up from there um, into some higher level things. So I teach, um, you know, we have programs like uh, how to build an online profile, um, recognizing trolls and catfishers and how to deal with them, uh, mm -hmm. moving from online to in-person. Um, and so uh, for these programs that we have, um, 
for instance, uh, the online to in-person in order to have that program as one that you're, you're going to be doing, um, you have to have already either met criteria for or completed the programs that we have on consent boundaries. Uh, we make sure that they've had their program in flirting versus harassment, um, that they have these skills for really discerning all of these things and, and what to do if you accidentally violated consent or if you realize that you're harassing somebody. Um, so once we get to this point and (laughs) thank you, (laughs) so as we get to this point and they've got that knowledge, um, what, what I do is I utilize either practicum students, uh, sometimes, uh, I've utilized empowered zone office staff. And then there've been times where I've actually, we needed variety. So, um, I, I hired and HIPAA trained, um, actors mm-hmm. and actresses to come just run role plays. Um, and so we're doing behavioral rehearsals where I have all of these kind of targets. I have a general task analysis of like, you know, is this person going up to these other people and waiting to get into the conversation or is he just like plowing in and like that kind of thing comes straight from peers. But then we get into this higher level. Um, you know, is, is he, um, noticing, whenever the actress is giving subtle cues with her face that like, she's not feeling great. Um, is he stopping, um, when that subtle cue is given, how is he responding? Um, so like Mm -hmm. we have all of these different targets, even in the behavioral rehearsals. And so the client engages in this, uh, this attempt at flirting. Um, and I'm there to pause if we need to, and I'll pause and say something along the lines of like, Hey, uh, pause, freeze actress. Okay, let's take a look at her face right now. How do you think she feels? And then why do you think she might feel that way? Okay, let's check in with her. Actress, how, how do you feel right now? Okay, is that why you were making that face? <laughs> Did you know you were making that face? Uh, and so uh, then, you know, once we're able to so kind funny. of resolve like that. A- oh, go ahead. Sorry, so many people could benefit from this. <laughs> so many people are unaware of uh, facial expressions, body language. And then there's also even people, you know, like myself who have a hard time even speaking up about it sometimes. It's like, uh, how do you even not understand what's going on? Um, speaking <laughs> yeah. in neurotypical terms, but sorry, continue. Oh, no, you're <laughs> fine. Um so what I was going to say is, uh, you know, it's a very, it's a safe thing when you do it in a role play. They know that they're not actually going to get slapped. They know that they're not actually going to get kicked out of this area or whatever for, uh, for taking this chance and trying. Um, so we get those responses and then we can start shaping those responses until they can kind of navigate these social rules better. Um, and anytime, of course, that the flirting is going really well, um, we have to pause <laughs> <laughs> to a certain point and be like, okay, things are going very well right here. Uh, so since things are going very well, we're going to assume things kept going well. And let's go through, now it's the end of the day. Um, how are you going to say goodbye to each other? Because <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely not getting paid, nor am I paying an actress or actor to, to um, actually flirt and date with this client. So, um, so the other thing that I also look for is like, you know, I don't want to use the same actor or actress over and over and over with a client. I want to make sure that they're able to generalize and also that they don't start to blur the line between fantasy role play and, Mm. uh, and what might be construed as a real relationship. Um, Mm. 
once we get to this point though where they're responding really well um, with an actor or an actress then we move out into the real world um, actual locations where they might want to do this um, and mm -hmm. continue the work with an actor and actress until they're doing well in the natural environment and then mm -hmm. we move it a little differently and so um, I'll do things like actually have uh, I'll have them go online they're using this profile that we created in our in our online thing um, when we're doing our mm -hmm. program. So they have this this profile that's made. Um, so uh, once we get to to this point where they have this profile, and again, they've also completed a, a catfishing and a trolling program. So I know that like you know they can mm -hmm. be safe in the event that somebody tries to catfish them. They're going to call it out. They're going to know. They're going to block this person or report this person. Um, mm -hmm. So we do it all from like. A to Z. So they get online, the actor or the actress has messaged them. And so we start this whole thing where they do the, the online flirting, they're, they're going through and they're making sure that they're not giving out more PPI than is warranted. And, you know, they're, they're meeting in a safe place. And uh, I'm checking to make sure, okay, now that you've, you've set this up, are you contacting a friend or a guardian and letting them know where you're mm -hmm. going to be? making sure that you have a ride to pick you up afterwards, things like that. Um, and then once that's set up, drive them to the restaurant or the place that they're going, bar sometimes, um, different places that, that they would want to go to meet people. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, they've established that they're going to be meeting with this person. They have their picture. They know what that person's wearing. And so we get there and I'm like, okay, you know what this person's face looks like. You know what they're wearing. Let's go see. Can you find them? Uh, right? Like that's a step. Yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and so I'm there with them, but I hang out behind a bit. And I also tell them while we're in this environment, um, I am not going to tell anybody that I'm here as a, as your therapist. Like I'm just another mm -hmm. guy. I'm here. Um, mm -hmm. So if you want me to sit like nearby, I'll sit nearby. If you want me to sit at your table, I'll sit at your table, but I'm not going to try and like make you have me around. Um, right. to give them a little bit more freedom. Um, they find the actor, or the actress, uh, they sit down at the right table. If not, I'm, I'm there to help, <laughs> uh, but, uh, they sit down at the right table. They start engaging and I can sit close enough to where I can, I can see the actor or actress's facial responses and body language. Um, every now and then I can catch the language being used. Sometimes it's loud. I can't control that. Um, yeah. you know, different things for at a bar or something. Um, but getting what data I can and then checking in with the actor or the actress for anything that was missed. Like, you know, did, did he say, share his name? Like, you know, did he, did right. he, uh, was it, was there any point in time where he tried to get you to go into private? Um, you know, did he stay out in public willingly or did you have mm -hmm. to prompt staying out in public? Um, so checking mm -hmm. those types of things, going mm -hmm. back, meeting with the client, giving them their feedback. Um, and then doing this again as many times as is needed until I know that they're able to do this well and safely. And so, and I'm not pushing like, you know, that it's a first date, so you're not allowed to have sex. Like, I'm not saying that. Uh, I tell them, you know, if it's a first date, don't expect sex. <laughs> if, mm -hmm. uh, if it's a first encounter, it makes a lot more sense to expect sex. If like you're meeting for a hookup. Uh, but mm -hmm. at the same time, you've also not met in person. So when you're meeting in person for the first time, they have the right to change their mind. You have your right to change your mind. 
Um, so we also incorporate that into this, this whole thing. So we basically have two separate little task analyses that we're doing, and one is date and one is what we call encounter or hookup. And so okay. it looks, looks a little bit different each time. Um, once I know that they can do this safely, then I'm like, okay, let's remove the actors or actresses. I will still go out with you. I'm going to sit at the table nearest by, and I'm going to be there in case things get rough and I can help pull you out of it. But I think you've got this. Mm-hmm. And so we go and they start their flirting and had a couple of really awesome successes. And I've also had a couple of times where I've had to get in there and save somebody, um, but mm-hmm. I can't control the variables of other people. And something I want to note is that more and more people are choosing who they want to talk to or date before they go out. They're using these apps. <laughs> mm-hmm. So just going to a bar and trying to flirt is so much harder than even like 10, 15 years ago. Uh, yeah. We used to go to a bar and like nobody was in their phones. Everybody was talking and people all wanted to meet new people. And, and that was a social thing. And now you go to a bar and people are hanging out in their phones and they're only talking to their friends and they don't want to flirt with anybody because they already picked their match on Tinder and he's going to show up at 1, mm. 1 a.m. They're holding out. Um, so it's like, it's a very different world that we're in. And that's a big part of why I'm teaching my clients to meet people online before they go out in person, mm-hmm. because that's what neurotypical people are doing as well. Um, and so if they're just going and trying to flirt in person, which is often what the funders want, the funders oftentimes have, you know, it's, it's faster and easier and safer to just teach flirting in person than to incorporate all of these online elements. Um, funders? Uh, yes, the people paying, uh, insurance, uh, uh, Medicaid, um, uh, agencies. Uh, so uh, sometimes, you know, they're, they're looking at this idea of online and they're like, can't you just teach the in-person? Like, I, we yeah, would feel much it. better. And yeah, and, and they're, what they're looking at, though, is they're looking at the safety elements. They're looking at, you know, things like catfishing and mm-hmm. trolling and these, these you know, um, the ability for somebody to pretend that they're something that they're not and uh, come out being friendly and then, uh, you know, turn out to be like a, a crazy person. Uh, right. And so this is like the idea in people's heads. But at the same time, um, the reality is that that can also happen in person. <laughs> you can meet somebody at a bar who seems totally 100%. awesome. 100%. Uh, I mean, we look at the, the concept of roofing, right? Um, mm-hmm. Roofing isn't happening online. Um, <laughs> so so in a lot of different ways, um, the online aspect is really relevant, especially right now. And, and um, especially because more and more people are choosing who they want to talk to before they go out. And so mm-hmm. if you try and talk, it's crazy because, you know, you're teaching social skills, you're teaching these people how to have great conversations and they're doing everything right, but they're punished because they're being social in a social environment where other people are not expecting socialization oh, uh, because so bars are no longer for socializing with new people. They're for hanging out with your friends over drinks, which you used to do at home. Uh, like It's just it's this interesting kind of a uh, uh, thing. And I think that um, it's not better or worse, but it's very different. And so we just have to be preparing clients for the way that that trends are showing us dating is going to look versus what what we were good at doing before smartphones. Um, Like (laughs) That's something to just recognize there. Yeah, definitely. I I prefer talking to someone before I meet them. I'm I'm super like I 
I have a really busy schedule. I don't just, and even talking to someone too, like if they don't have a good profile, I'm like, <laughs> meh, you didn't, you know, you didn't put enough work in. I'm not like interested. And it just, it puts a lot of filters in place for me. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I definitely, um, I'm definitely a fan. I'm on all the alternative dating sites. Do you ever get some uh, neurotypical people who want to go through this like dating? You know, uh, honestly, um, I have not had a neurotypical person sign up for that program. Um, that's been, uh, so far, I want to say everybody that we've done that one with has had autism trying to think if any of them had a different disability that went through that particular program. At this point, I want to say probably just um, our clients with autism who've done that program. Um, I've mm-hmm. done a lot of programs for clients with Down syndrome, cerebral palsy, things like that, um, but never that particular um, set of programs. And I think part of that too comes down to um, how easy it is to mingle um, when you have uh, no phenotypical signs of your disability versus when you do. Um, I think that that's a, that's an element there. Um, for some people, like for instance, adults with Down syndrome, they might not even have ever considered the possibility that they could date a neurotypical person in their, uh, their right. environments might not have ever supported that idea, even if they've had it. Um, uh, for instance, um, I knew a young man who he only attracted to neurotypical women, um, women with no disability that is discernible. Um, and he has down syndrome. And so the, uh, the emphasis that most people were making was like, help him love himself more and be more okay with down syndrome so that he'll be okay with dating girls with down syndrome. Mm-hmm. And it was like, or instead of telling him what is or isn't hot, um, mm-hmm. let him kind of He's, he's into NT girls. <laughs> right? yeah. That's what, that's, that's his kink. So if that's what he wants, then let's help, maybe set him up and start building him towards that. Yeah. Um, if that's a possibility for him. And so we yeah. always want to have those kinds of conversations at least. Um, yeah. And we always want to look at community access and least restrictive um, things always. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. It's silly to try and just, tell someone who they should like, or, I mean, that's even telling someone that they're not even good enough, you know, and that's not, that's not, um, ethical in my, well, if we look at the disability, um, treatments in general and and agency standards across the U S over the last, you know, hundred years, it's, it's shifted immensely. Um, we used to put anybody with a notable disability, um, we'd lock them up, we'd put them away. Mm-hmm. You know, that was the thing. You just lock them up and put away the key, um, medicate them so that they don't have sexual impulse. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes people who had really high sexual impulse were being used in studies that they had no, uh, no say in. Um, and, and just all these really intense things used to happen in the disability world. And I think that we sometimes forget that that wasn't really that long ago. Right. Um, and so, yeah, there's so much work to still be done, but we're on a good path. Um, a lot of work still to be done. A lot of infantilization still happening and treating them like they're younger or not sexual. Um, but like we're getting more and more into treating them like humans and more and more with that 
becomes the sex side because sexuality is intrinsically linked to being human. Even if you're asexual, it's still tied to being human. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have an asexual friend who, who she doesn't, um, she's a pro dom and she doesn't, she told me she doesn't get anything from it, but she She still needs that release. (laughs) Well, yes, she gets money and, it's still just a release for her. It's she doesn't find it like she's not getting wet or she's not turned on by this situation, but it's still a good sexual release for her. Um, I find, I found that really interesting. Something to note about asexuality is that, um, uh, classical definition means that it's, you're not attracted to the idea of sex. Um, that's asexual. Um, and so, uh, that doesn't mean that they don't ever want sex. Um, they might right. sometimes, um, or they might want a variant of it or get something else out of it. But like, if you were just to be like, Hey, you want to have sex? The average asexual person's going to be like, no, it's yeah. <laughs> not really. <laughs> nah, probably not. Uh, oh my gosh. Uh, sometimes I feel that way for sure. I'm just like, mm can we just do something else? Like, cause as a lot of people don't understand that sex doesn't have to be penile vaginal penetration. It can be so many other things just oh, yeah. like, you know, and that's something that I really want to bring to light for people like just soft touch or even just having a conversation with someone. Mm-hmm. Um, you still develop that form of connection with them, which is really the, the core, I think, of having sex. Oh, yeah. And that's a big reason why I'm such an uh, emphasizing advocate for uh, Sensate Focus. Like, I'm huge on it. Um, Because Sensate Focus is learning to focus completely on the senses um, and on the Mm -hmm. connection that you have with your partner um, and to let go of any other thoughts or feelings that you're having that are not related to this intimacy. Um, Mm -hmm. And recognizing if you're having anxiety about this intimacy, uh, that anxiety is actually related to thoughts about the past or the future. It's not part of the present. So you can let go of the anxieties uh, and just really focus on the sensory aspect. Um, And then people move away from that classical vaginal penis uh, Mm -hmm. uh, penetration heteronormative kind of uh, uh, idea of what sex is um, and they start to generate their own definition of sex. And that's one thing I love doing is um, towards the end of Sensate Focus, asking the couple, I always ask them at the beginning to define sex and I always ask them near the end to define sex. And then I have a conversation with them about how it's shifted and changed and like how these behavioral protocols shaped their language too. And how their language reinforced, because you're thinking your language, it's reinforcing what the behavioral protocols were doing. And so we now have created a system that's reinforcing itself. And the couple together uh, are also doing that, reinforcing one another uh, and themselves as they engage in these exercises. So what would someone, what is like a typical beginning sex definition versus something that you would aim for after? Yeah. Uh, so uh, very common baseline sex definition is sex. Uh, sex, even for people who are like, they know what's coming. So they, they know to avoid 
<laughs> I think people know when they get asked this it's a question. Trick question. They they do. They're like, oh, the sex therapist just asked me to define sex. Um, so uh, they'll oftentimes say something along the lines of like, I know it shouldn't have to be this, but mm. this is what I think of, which still tells me that underlying this is this is your definition of sex. Uh, penis to vagina um, and an orgasm. Almost always. Penis to vagina and an orgasm. That's what people are thinking about. And so um, if, uh, if we take that and over time can shape that and look at this definition being what is sex? Well, sex is whatever me and my partner do um, when we're journeying together, um, sometimes naked. Um, like, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> sometimes naked. Um, I really love this, this more open, flexible idea that sex is a journey um, that mm-hmm. two people go on and you have no set goal. You have no, your only goal is to journey together. Um, yeah. And so when you go into it, and you, um, I also teach my clients to tap into their inner child. Um, and, you know, obviously I want to keep kids separate from sex, but your inner child, we all have this right. inner child. Well, you have uh, to define the, the <laughs> different psyches, right? Right. So uh, without getting too into it, because I know behavior analysts aren't going to want to hear all of that, um, mm. but we all have this inner child and this inner child, this part of us that's spontaneous, that's free, that wants to have a good time, that's impulsive. Uh, this part of us uh, can be really hindering or it, can, or it can be highlighted as a strength. Um, and so if we can let that inner kid out during mm-hmm. sex mm-hmm. Um, and us mm. and our partners just making sex into whatever it can be because we're curiously observing and exploring, that's all it yeah. is. Like, I don't know where this is going to go today, but I'm here with you and that's what matters and let's turn the bed into a playground. And I don't know, yeah. by by the end of tonight, we might have an orgasm or uh, we might not. Doesn't matter because I was with you. Um, yeah. And that's really the important part there. Um, so I've, I've done things like actually had clients. Um, <laughs> this is one of my favorites. Um, if they're hyper fixating on erections, um, having them take an extra session in between some of their sensate and Literally the entire goal is anytime you get an erection, you're going to let it go away mm-hmm. every time. Cause they're afraid of their erections going away. Right. That's, that's the anxiety. Mm-hmm. So okay. I'm like, you know, what we're going to do is your partner's going to tantalize you. Every time your partner tantalizes you and you do get an erection, you're going to let it go away and your mm-hmm. partner's going to let it go away. And then once it's gone, you can resume. And you're only going to move forward with intimacy without an erection. You're not allowed to have an erection in your intimacy this week. That's cool. Um, That kind of reminds me of this. I don't remember what I was reading, but it was talking about how a man should enter a woman. Like, I mean, this is, this is not to say this is like a rule, but, um, enter a woman like softer and like leave them harder. Like it shouldn't, they shouldn't go in hard and leave soft. They should enter soft and leave hard. Um, because orgasm and, 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 um, erections are not the center focus there. That's interesting. I've never heard it phrased that way. Yeah, it was, uh, I want to say it was, um, a Buddhist like approach or something, but, 
it definitely our tantric approach. Um, but yeah, it was interesting focusing on like the female pleasure side of things. So, yeah. um, so I want to see uh, about okay. So you're gonna think this is this is awesome. Oh this, yeah, the psychology of Zelda. <laughs> Okay, so you posted this, and I'm a huge Zelda fan, and I was like, oh, my God. So I know that you're a you're a little bit of a nerd when it comes to gamer gaming, and you incorporate it into your practice. Um, by the way, did you read the book? I'm actually – so I bought that one and Psychology of Final Fantasy at the same time, and I'm still working through Psychology of Final Fantasy. I'm so okay. looking forward to Psychology of Zelda. <laughs> Um, you have a D and D game that you play with your clients. Yes. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, so it's, it's currently on a hiatus. Um, we're revamping and we're making it more behavior analytic, <clears throat> um, getting, uh, some data tracking in place and stuff like that. I have a practicum student right now who's overhauling it. Um, so the first time that, uh, that we ran this group, it was more of a, like, let's, let's see where this goes. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not here to prove a hypothesis. I'm here to, to generate some hypotheses <laughs> at first. And so we didn't right. charge any money and we told people, you know, upfront, like, this is not behavior analytic in nature. This is to give you a chance to, um, to learn sex ed in a very different way and to practice social skills in a very different way. Um, and so we were utilizing research. Um, this wasn't something we came up with on our own, um, but uh, we, what we did was we generated, um, and I had the help of uh, Elise Keel. I'm gonna give her a full shout out because what she did was amazing. Um, so she's not a behavior analyst. Um, she is uh, an autistic self-advocate um, and uh, she's done some really amazing volunteer work at Empowered. And um, one of the things that she did was helped us with this group um, because she's very, very good at D&D. Um, and so she uh, helped. I sat down with her. I told her, I said, you know, these, these are seven lessons I want to make sure get learned. Um, I want my clients to know about consent. I want them to know about gender. I want them to know about sexual fluidity. I want them to know about catfishing and trolls. I want mm -hmm. them to know about um, why we can't assume the thoughts or feelings of another person um, and why uh, gender stereotypes should not be like what we act upon. Uh, we can have them, but like we shouldn't just assume that because, you know, she's a woman, she's going to want this, or because I'm a guy, mm -hmm. I have to do this. Um, and so Elise took these, these lessons that I had and all of these points that I wanted to make. Um, and it was just so cool of her. Um, she wrote out a campaign where every session was one of these different lessons. And so um, cool. we would sit down as a group and I would always play as, um, as one of the characters so that I was in the world and could provide some, uh, friendly guidance and prompting within the game um, so that we didn't have to pause things and we didn't have to, you know, stop and provide mm -hmm. feedback and then re-enter. Uh, so my character was there. And, um, and then I also even had a side character of my own uh, because my character uh, was intentionally chaotic neutral. 
which means that half of the time my character was giving really good advice, but half the time my character was giving very bad advice uh, uh, with the goal of creating chaos and just yeah, enjoying of it. Um, so he had his own side character that um, that was his magical pet that was hanging out. And the side character mm-hmm. was uh, was a, a good character. And, uh, mm-hmm. and so this character would pop up every now and then and be like the extra conscience for the group, yeah. um, especially if they started taking my bad advice. Um, so it's just kind it's of coming in with that extra level of prompting and being like, are we sure we want to be listening to the chaotic neutral <laughs> person right now? Because like, oh, I don't know, I don't know. Um, and then letting the group kind of figure out what, why, why is this little otter? It was my little otter named Fluffer Notter. Um, so my little otter speaking up. If my little otter speaking up, something's up. Like mm-hmm. they know to, they know to have a conversation. Um, and getting to watch them in character, which was also really cool. Um, uh, don these roles, try to empathize with each other, with each other's mm-hmm. characters, um, with their character and how their character would be responding to things versus how they might. Um, mm. It's just creating a lot of higher level uh, empathy, teamwork, um, team building, um, cooperation, um, strategizing, just very higher level social skills that I had. I knew all of these participants. I had worked with them prior and I had never seen them use their social skills this way. Um, and they were getting this sex ed um, and learning these these additional lessons um, on top of that, and so we want to um, now go back through, and uh, now that we've seen that it can work, um, and we've seen how how awesome it really is, um, we're going through and creating a data collection system and uh, a basic like pre and post assessment um, yeah. that we can start to offer that, and so we're calling it Sex Ed, and then uh, the D on Sex Ed turns into a D&D symbol. So sex ed D&D. Love it. And you, this is something you do remotely with people, obviously, because you're online playing the actual video game. So it's, a, well, it's not a video game. Um, Dungeons and Dragons is a tabletop RPG. Um, so prior to the pandemic, they were coming to my office after hours and we were, we were hosting it in our conference okay. room. Okay. Okay. Um, oh, I wanted to hear about what it looks like when one of your autistic clients wants to know about kink and um i mean the 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 most i guess most extreme example i can come up with is is uh, impact play um if that's something if something kind of edge play that they wanted to engage in like how how do you approach that with your clients? And is that common with your clients? Um, so I will throw out there that um, I have not had clients come in directly and ask about impact play. I know about impact play um, <laughs> very much so, um, but uh, in regard to clients coming in and asking uh, for assistance with that or um, having needs that I felt could be met through that, um, that has not yet happened uh, in my own practice. Um, but some of the kinks that have come through that have been very interesting, I'll, I'll throw out there that probably the most interesting for um, people working with disabilities comes down to ABDL, um, adult babies and diaper mm-hmm. lovers. Um, so like if you're working with care staff um, a, in a residential facility and you're the behavior analyst and you're 
trying to provide wraparound care and train everybody and, and make sure everybody's taken care of um, with the client at the center. Um, but the client's kink is being taken care of. Mm-hmm. Um, you really have to walk some lines here because literally worked into your job at this point is satisfying this person's kink. But yeah. also what you're not allowed to do in your job is satisfy this person's kink. So it's really so, interesting. Yeah. Um, when, when we have that issue um, come up, the issue is not with the client because there's to- nothing wrong with being ABDL. Um, The issue comes down to the system not being prepared for things like ABDL identities. Um, So I've been working with staff very much. I'm like, um, research has indicated that these are the mental health reasons why somebody might engage in ABDL. Um, Research has indicated these are the sexual reasons why somebody might engage in ABDL. Um, Research has linked the diapers um, to both the coping and the sexual side. Um, mm-hmm. So you've got to get in there and you've got to find out the function of the diapers for the client. Are they in there for the coping? Are they in there for the sex? Are they in there for both? Mm-hmm. Um, if it's purely for coping, um, then I don't see any reason why a client couldn't even be prompted by staff. Like, hey, um, you know, seems like you could use some time. Would you want to like watch Barney? Um would you want to mm-hmm. color or would you want to go put on a diaper and, and then maybe pick out an activity? Like mm-hmm. to me, that's totally fine. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, staff are like given this directive that they're supposed to be helping the client be independent and age appropriate. And like, again, the idea that they would be offering childlike options. Um, mm-hmm. It's really hard for some staff um, and also hard. Again, when we look at funders, uh, the people who are paying mm-hmm. for the service, they don't want to see that uh, that a client who's supposed to be per their mandates, um, the client's supposed to be getting more and more independent. And then they're seeing that this client is spending money on childlike things and staff are giving mm-hmm. childlike prompts. Um, so they, they look at that and they say, hey, this is the opposite. Um, and so having to work up the system mm-hmm. and really showing throughout the system, like this is the mental health side. This is the sexual side. Um, staff can be involved in this. Staff cannot be involved in that. Um, almost never would I recommend staff be involved in the changing of a diaper for an ABDL. Um, mm-hmm. Unless the, the person actually has to wear diapers because uh, they have physical reasons or intellectual reasons why they cannot wipe themselves or take care of themselves. That's one thing. But like if they, if they don't have actual care needs related to the diaper, it's more of a coping or a sexual, um, then they can change it. And if they want somebody else to change that diaper, it's not going to be staff, but maybe now is a good time for them to start working on being a good choice for a partner and on getting community access and joining the ABDL community. But then also that means that you have to train staff on how to help the client access the ABDL community and how mm-hmm. to do that without overstepping bounds. So there's like all of these so interesting. fun extra layers um, and yeah. definitely very, very relevant um, in the work that a lot of behavior analysts do as ABDL comes more and more out of the closet and is is being more and more of a recognized kink. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like ABA, everyone in, in ABA should be trained in a sexual 
should have some type of training when it comes to sexuality because it's inevitably going to come up in <laughs> their practice. It just it is. Um, unless someone is, I mean, it's still going to come up if someone is asexual because they're going to ask like, well, why am I, am I not normal? Um, you know, and then have or to the system that. might tell them that they're not, um, you exactly. know, they might have staff who are prompting them to try and date. They might have family members who are telling them that, you know, they, they need to date. Um, a lot of these things happen. Um, right. and also the assumption that like asexual is like a solid identity and not a spectrum. Uh, right. is something to really acknowledge there too, is that there, there are asexuals who absolutely will never in their lives touch genitals. Like, ew, those are gross. I'm not doing it. And then yeah. you've got asexuals who are like, I'll play with genitals. I don't see it as a sexual <laughs> thing, but they're pretty funny. Like, right. can I do puppetry with your penis? And then you've got like <laughs> asexuals who are like, you know, um, I'm not really into genitals at all, but like, I love the fact that other people like to have sex. And so- you know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm cool with like hosting a sex party and I'll just be the, uh, the, the person who hosts. Uh, yeah. So there's some very sex positive as asexual people out there. Uh, yeah. It's a very unique uh, identity in itself because it's a whole spectrum of identities um, with only one label. Yeah, true. Like so many things. Yeah, like so many things. <laughs> but then when we try and label things ind individually... Um, you know, uh, like when we look at the queer umbrella being labeled as LGBTQIA plus, and some people go and they do all of the acronyms, um, yeah. there's validity in that. Like, it's important that everybody be recognized at the same time. Um, we have to look at, at the reality of human behavior and at the fact that like reading a really long acronym when sometimes you don't even know what all of the letters means is probably punitive. Um, and so giving this really long acronym every single time um, might cause other people to shut down a little bit. Um, so like we got to work with these competing contingencies here because we want to make sure that everyone is highlighted and the purpose of mm -hmm. this is so that everyone is highlighted. But if it causes the people that we're trying to reach out to for support or help to shut down, then is anyone highlighted? Um, and right. so do we go back to just calling it the queer umbrella and calling calling anybody with this identity queer, um, you know, regardless of where you're at on the LGBTQIA plus spectrum, or do we say right. LGBTQIA plus? I mean, you can always mm -hmm. tell uh, how comfortable a person is doing this work by how well they can rattle off that acronym. <laughs> uh, you can just tell if somebody's been doing this work with the LGBTQIA plus population because that, that rolls off their tongue. And then you get right. the other people who are like, the the L G uh, G L Bs and the T and the T's I think wasn't there is there a P in there somewhere uh, and you're like okay uh, <laughs> I don't think that you uh, you've been doing this oh very much yeah it's true uh, I I I when it comes to when it comes to labels I'm so anti label sometimes because I'm so about labels but I'm so anti-label at the same time because I feel like it's so limiting and a lot of people when you can put a label to something there's usually one definition that they know and it's also a way for someone to say okay okay this is what you are now I understand you and I can put you in this box and 
but then you know, put somebody in a box you. and you're assuming that you can understand. And that's the, right. that's the hardest part. Um, and sometimes it happens even with people who have the same label. Um, so yeah, the hierarchy uh, is, and, yeah. and not recognizing the intersections. Um, so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, one of the things that has been really highlighted in the queer community recently is, uh, white cisgender gay men, um, claiming that, you know, we're closer to equality and we've got all these rights. And then you look at the rest of the queer umbrella <laughs> and they're not, they're not closer, um, mm -mm. in a lot of ways. Um, and so, uh, we see again, when we label ourselves as one community, people forget about these, these different subsets having different experiences. Um, and so we want to make sure that all, all of these subsects are being, um, highlighted. Um, so it's a, it's a weird thing. Labels are, are interesting. Have you done any, uh, any looking into, uh, relational frame theory? No, I really no. recommend you look into RFT. Um, relational frame theory is being more and more accepted in ABA. Um, it's the foundation of ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, um, mm -hmm. which can be used in ABA um, through ACT training uh, or can be used outside of ABA as ACT therapy, um, which is more psychodynamic um, and psychotherapeutic okay. than the ACT training, oh. which is more like, here's the skill, here's how to apply it, let's go. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I like both. Both are, both are pretty amazingly effective. Um, I will say I like the freedom of act therapy and getting in there deep sometimes. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but it, it stems down to the frames that we're making, um, oftentimes yeah. around language. And so uh, it's a really, really neat um, science. Um, yeah, I was getting into, I had a little conversation with my friend about relationship anarchy last night. And he's like, isn't that label like, a paradox in itself because you're trying to get away from labels and you're putting a label on something. And his approach was, shouldn't every relationship that you, that you're in just be unique to the individuals involved? I'm like, well, yes, of course, but that's just not how the general population sees relationships or, or typically will, they are subconsciously, I mean, I'm only speaking from my personal experience. I have subconsciously walked into relationships thinking that it's supposed to be this way. Mm -hmm. um, when I wasn't taught that I could just create my own. Hello. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's relational framing. So, you know, okay. based on, uh, on your history, what you have learned to attribute to the word date, um, you get an idea in your mind of what a date is going to be or what dating is going to be. Um, maybe get an idea based on the word relationship, what relationships should be or should look like. The more that you get exposed to, the larger the frame and the more flexible it is. Um, so people who stay in their own little bubbles uh, are going to have more concrete and rigid uh, frames and they're going to be harder to teach new things to. Uh, mm -hmm. People who are expanding their frames, um, as the frame becomes more expanded, it becomes more and more flexible and it's easier to add more information in. Um, and so we look at, uh, at, uh, things like, um, people who have an internal, uh, again, label of, um, maybe, uh, a diagnosis. Um, so like I'm HIV positive. Um, and so if like I have frames with my HIV that tie it to shame, guilt, fear, stigma, 
a lot of things that I definitely did have in my early 20s mm-hmm. when I was first diagnosed. Um, but something that um, that I started to recognize was the more that I perseverated on I have HIV, uh, the more that all of these like deep-rooted things that had been kind of shaped into me about HIV um, were sinking in and taking hold. Um, I kept seeing in my head myself looking like uh, Tom Hanks in Philadelphia. Um, I kept seeing like different scenes from movies. Um, you know, um, I remember this TV show I had seen when I was like seven years old and there was this episode where a character had had AIDS. And like, I kept thinking about like, you know, I'm 20, 22 and I'm like thinking back to this episode that I saw when I was seven, because it's the only way that I can make these relational frames and try and understand my experience. Um, and it wasn't until I started getting out there and meeting other positive adults, um, who were living their lives and, and who to them, like HIV meant a different thing. Um, Mm -hmm. and so I got out there and I was like, Oh, it's, it's just different. Like, yeah. It's just different. It's scary because it's different, but it's just different. Right. Um, and it's always so, going to be scary. Yep. For sure. A lot of people fear this um, experience because of a lack of, of knowledge around it or lack of education around it, but it's not really something to be feared. It's just something different. And you're just going to have to approach it differently, learn new things. And um, yeah, that, that can be scary for everyone. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, change, change is always scary. Um, and, uh, do you mind if I, if I move away from ABA for a moment and more onto the traditional therapy side? So, um, if you look at like Satir's stages of growth, um, mm-hmm. so you have your old status quo, um, and your old status quo might be something that you know is not good for you, but like, you at least know what's expected in it. You've, you've resigned yourself to it. It's not good for you, but at least, at least, you know about it. So you have at least the comfort of familiarity. Um, Then you have the introduction of a foreign stimulus, either new information, a new person or a life changing event for whatever reason, this introduction of foreign stimulus generates chaos. It interrupts Mm -hmm. the system. And so when chaos is there, you have a natural pull back towards the old status quo because chaos is uncomfortable and unpredictable. And at Mm -hmm. least the old status quo, which might have sucked, is predictable. And we find comfort in that familiarity. So we have a draw back to homeostasis, going back to that old status quo. But in this period of chaos, if we can make it through the chaos, and this is where sometimes you need a therapist or a good friend or a a solid community (laughs) or just Mm -hmm. some darn good resiliency skills. Um, Mm -hmm. But if we can make it through that chaos, um, then on the other side of the chaos is growth. And then when you have growth, you achieve a new status quo and a new way of approaching things. Mm -hmm. And so that's the stages of growth. And then the new status quo becomes the old status quo as Mm -hmm. a new foreign stimulus gets brought in. Um, Mm -hmm. So we're constantly given chances to grow or to remain the same. And it's uncomfortable to grow. So a lot of people choose to stay the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, I, I'm a bit of a wild card sometimes. I'll <laughs> feel myself to be very stagnant. And when that when I get that feeling, I will make some I will cause chaos in my life to push myself. I'll put the pressure on and people are like, what are you doing? You're crazy. Why would you do that? Why would you, you know, why would you, why would you tell your parents that, you know, X, Y, and Z? And I'm like, well, because it's, it's, I, you know, I didn't really think it through. I just did it. And I am happy with where I am now. I'm more free and I feel liberated with where I am right now. Um, and it, it, it's the same thing with approaching everything that's new. It's just like you fear it and then you realize that you're much stronger than you think and you get through it and you're like, whoa, I'm still alive. Like, yeah, <laughs> this, I, you, I really think that you would like acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, cause that's, cool. that's really what it comes down to. Acceptance and commitment therapy is all about willingness to face discomfort and commit mm -hmm. to actions that are going to better your life. I love that. Um, yeah, it's a really, and that's why they call it ACT instead of ACT. It's because mm -hmm. at the heart of it, you're supposed to engage in committed action. You are supposed mm -hmm. to act, not react. Right, right. Um, and I really you love it. To... <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, uh... The uh, something throw out there um, as a resource. Uh, mm. ACT is a contextual behavioral science. Um, and so it can be performed by people of any uh, behavioral or mental health field. Um, and like you're a student right now, Margo, um, you could actually um, join contextual behavior science for $13 for a year. Um, wow. And it gives you access to videos, trainings, and protocols. Sweet, absolutely. I am a part of the SSSS and ASEC too. So, and I get their journals awesome. and yeah, it's oh. really cool. Just engaging in the extra education that's being offered my way. SSSS has, I love the journal of sex research. Oh my goodness. Me too. It's my, um, <laughs> it's my, uh, what's it called? It's my mouse pad. So oh, it just sits right awesome. here every day. Yeah. I get to like peek in it. I read a, a, a journal every day or every week just to nice. dive in more because yeah, my studies are, I'm in ABA psych, but I get to choose the research that I want to present to the class. So it's always sex sexuality centered, um, Ooh, which yeah. is why I'm loving this uh, online curriculum thing. Uh, so cool. I will definitely check those out. Um, and speaking of, resources. I know that you offer the in-home parties and essentially oh, yeah. that's kind of a resource. I know that you're not doing it right now because of COVID, but, uh, for anyone who would be interested in learning more about sexuality and making it fun, um, can reach out to you and I want to hear more, you know, tell our listeners a little bit about that. For sure. Um, okay. So, uh, uh, I shamelessly call myself the sex analyst, um, and <laughs> uh, you can find find me on Twitter there. Uh, uh, so uh, <laughs> the um, party with the sex analyst uh, is a service that we offer at Empowered, and um, basically what we have are 24 options of um, topics to learn about. Um, they 
could potentially, if I were to do this for a group of BCBAs, it could potentially make this worth CEUs. Um, never mm. really thought about that. Just now having that cool. aha moment. Um, <laughs> but um, people pick their topics. They pick uh, three topics. And um, and I'll speak for 45 to 50 minutes about each. If it was going to be CEUs, it would have to be 50 minutes. Um, mm. But uh, talk about each of these topics. Um, and in talking about the topics, bringing in a uh, uh, like a little slideshow, but also... The slideshow is not the emphasis. The emphasis is going to be on game-related instruction um, so that we can talk about this and like have a good time. And it's meant to be a party. So uh, if, for instance, um, like let's say a person, housewife, decides she's going to have the girls over, they're going to party with the sex analyst. So um, <laughs> up to six people can be there. I show up. Um, and I've got my presentations ready and then also um, baked goods. Mm -hmm. um, so they can choose um, if they want to have a penis cake or if they want to have breasts cake or a vulva cake, um, bring out baked goods and um, basically just play games, learn um, some new things, have some uh, sexy little treats um, mm -hmm. and then do uh, some trivia and prizes at the end um, so that it feels like, a party. It's a fun, yeah. it's a sex ed party. Um, because too often what happens is, you know, people want to have like a sexy kind of a party. Um, well, if they're not going to have like a play party where people are actually having sex, the other option that people go for are like these passion parties or pure romance parties. These companies come in and sorry, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm going to dog them a little bit, but this is the reality. They're selling you, you know, products from five, 10 years ago, Mm -hmm. marked up higher than new products in stores. And what mm -hmm. you're paying for is, is for a pyramid scheme. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, you're, you're spending $75 on a $40 vibrator um, and people are getting really frustrated. Like, okay, so this is our party is having somebody come in and it's basically a Tupperware party with sex toys. Right. Um, and it's like, that's not really what people are wanting when they want to party. And yeah. so the goal of this is not to sell you anything like you pay in advance. I'm not here to sell you Jack. I'm here yeah. to teach you and to have a good time and to get you to kind of apply this knowledge in gameplay and some fun with your friends. Um, give them uh, sometimes um, people choose to have an hour of nothing but Q and a um, yeah. ask any question you want to the sex analyst. Right. Um, and you know, that can be a, a fun thing as well. <laughs> Uh, do you have, do you go in with like a, I mean, I'm sure there's a general plan that you follow, but if someone requested like, Hey, we want to learn about BDSM, would you have a, would oh, you yeah. cater to that? Yeah. So just to give you an idea, some of the topics. Um, so we have, um, we have 50 shades of vanilla, um, for people who want to learn how to expand, but still stay within the, the more vanilla side of things. Okay, cool. Um, but we also have, um, puppy play BDSM. Um, we have, uh, uh, fisting and water sports. Um, we have, yeah, <laughs> uh, we have, awesome. um, polyamory. Um, uh, we, what else do we have? Um, uh, I, I know we have one on ABDL, um, cool. just a variety of different kinks and subsets. Um, yeah. 
and really, again, you know, if somebody was like, I want to learn about this and I'm like, oh, that's a good idea. I'm going to add that to my offering. So I'm not yeah. going to say no. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's always more to learn and no. I, I love learning too. So yeah, if somebody's like, hey, I, I want to learn about pony play and all mm. I have right now is puppy play. I can very easily put together some pony play stuff. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, if, if people want something different, they can ask and, and I'll I'll cater to that. Right now it's been on hold because of the pandemic and it really sucks because we were just kicking it off right before the pandemic. Uh, so we've got the idea and like we 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 got we got to do one party <laughs> before the pandemic started. Oh no. Uh, so it's going to work. We know it's going to be fun um, and we can't wait for the pandemic to be lifted so that I can start offering that service again. What I am looking at right now is what are the realities of potentially doing this more from a virtual standpoint is this mm-hmm. possible for me to kind of go national and have people have a party with their right. friends but you know have me on a on a screen and then um potentially like shipping out um baked goods um yeah. so that they have those uh can still have the baked goods and still have the party element and all of that yeah. um so I would definitely sign up for that for sure. If you could go international or national, um, I would just be really, I don't know. I think everyone's getting more accustomed to this, um, zoom calls and all that good stuff that I think it would totally be acceptable, especially if you could just hook it up to the TV, you can have your little face right there <laughs> and then your presentation going on. Um, I think that'd be really cool. Especially yeah. since there's not a lot of like quality education around kink either. So it would be well, really beneficial. People are afraid to ask. Um, yeah. And one of the things that I wanted this as a the party idea was like when you have, because I offered for the longest time, um, you know, uh, sexuality education for neurotypical adults at our center. And for five years, nobody took that service. Uh, nobody in St. Louis who knew about the service opted for the service. Um, so adults, neurotypical adults say we do not need sex ed, but then they go into these sex stores, um, you know, uh, uh, different adult novelty stores, and they're asking all of these freaking questions. Uh, (laughs) so it's like, like you should be paying me for this. Well, it, it comes more down to like, okay, what's going on here? And it's it's stigma yeah. and it's shame. And it's the idea that like, you know, if I go into a group, I don't know all of these people and I don't know like how they're going to respond. But like, if it's you and your friends and you've knocked one back, um, you're, you're going to be a lot more comfortable and a lot mm-hmm. more uh, open to asking these kinds of questions. Um, and so that was a thing to note was that this was not a behavior analytic service. It's not considered therapy. Um, Mm -hmm. it's just fun sex education. And so it is, uh, one of those things where I said, um, you know, I will never be under the influence, but like, it's a party. If you want to have a drink or or two, or you want to smoke your medical marijuana or whatever, you can do that. Um, if things, if somebody's belligerent or something like that, I'm going to (laughs) leave. But, uh, but I want people to feel like, like sex ed can be sexy, that it can be Mm -hmm. fun that you can have fun with your friends around the taboo. It doesn't have to be a trip to the adult store and asking in secret. Um, Mm -hmm. Maybe even goat your friends on a little bit, get your friends to ask that question that they've been asking you. (laughs) You (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's something that has seriously lacked in 
in education worldwide. Um, that was actually my original business model. My first business model was to just do that. Um, yeah. And then uh, when I started getting into ABA and all of these other things, put that business model on the, on the side burner. But then I was like, hey, you know, I think I can yeah. work this in. And, yeah. and I, I've always wanted to do this. Sex education parties just sound so, yeah. so much fun. Um, yeah. but the, something to note is that like my former business partner was, um, it, she actually notified me of why we could not do this while, um, while she was at my company. Uh, so at the time she was ASECT certified and an ASECT certified sexuality educator cannot go do an in-home party. Um, and cannot do um, uh, any sort of like event like that where there could be alcohol uh, or drugs oh. or something like that present. Um, so if you're doing <clears throat> education under like a certified sexuality educator title, right. then it has to be more formalized and more education. You can't be going and doing in-home right. parties. So <laughs> I can because I'm not a certified sexuality educator with ASEC. Um, I'm on ASEC's bylaws committee, but I'm not a certified sexuality educator with them. Um, and I wouldn't be going out saying I am an ASEC certified sexuality right. educator. Um, I would just be saying I'm the sex analyst and this is a sex ed party. Um, and so that's why I can do that. Um, so that's something that I also, uh, again, when she had exited, um, I recognized like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> That opportunity is now back up because uh, Empowered is not um, is not currently ASEC affiliated, um, so we can we can do that for now. Currently, are you working towards that? I'm working towards becoming an ASEC certified sex therapist, but I still would not uh -huh. be billing those parties as sex educate uh, under certified sexuality educators. Okay. So I could still move forward that way, but cool. I would never be doing in home sex therapy because. Uh, if I right. were to do sex therapy, that would have to be virtual or in the office. Right. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Um, okay. And any resources that you could offer for people looking to explore their hmm, interests in alternative relationships or um, or kink related things, or even approaching alternative therapies. Like how would someone even find you, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, so believe it or not, you can actually, um, psychology today has a really good, um, search feature. Um, and you're allowed now to put that you're kink affirming therapist, um, in your psychology today profile. Um, so now you can actually find kink affirming therapists there. Um, if uh, you're a sex worker or in the adult industry, um, Pineapple Support is a fantastic resource. Um, they offer support groups virtual for um, people who are adult film stars, um, dancers, and different types of sex workers. Um, uh, other good resources. Um, I think that um, something that people really should look at um, as, as a, a general uh, resource, no matter what kind of practitioner you are, uh, it's really wise to look at research from outside fields. And mm -hmm. I just want to point that out. Like you're looking at journal of sex research, uh, journal of sex research is not something that the average behavior analyst thinks to pick up. Mm -hmm. 
But there are things in Journal of Sex Research that are very, very well done. Um, uh, the science is strong. The data is objective and quantifiable. And like, you can take some of that research and put it into practice. Um, mm -hmm. So learning how to take um, outside research and put it into your own framework for your own license type or your own certified uh, body's um, requirements, uh, that's an important thing. Um, and for behavior analysts, um, something I want to throw out there is uh, Shrek and Miller 2010, uh, their article, um, How to Behave Ethically in a World of Fads, published in Behavior Interventions. Uh, awesome, awesome article. Great resource for how to take outside information and make it fit within the behavior analyst uh, uh, practice, because that's a tricky thing. And as mm -hmm. somebody who's wearing two hats, a sex therapist and sexual behavior analyst, I've got to make absolutely sure that if I'm taking something from sex therapy, that I'm putting it through that framework and that it absolutely. fits in the ABA. Yeah. So, and um, you offer telehealth services. Mm -hmm. So someone, let's say, um, who was living out of state from you would be able to session with you or one of your employees. Um, it depends. Uh, it depends. Okay. So um, it depends on the licensing laws in their state or province mm -hmm. um, and what falls under what. Um, so if there is licensure that covers sex therapy in their uh, province, mm -hmm. then I cannot mm -hmm. provide it because I'm not licensed in their province. Um, okay. What I can do nationwide is consult. Uh, uh -huh. I can offer consultations. Um, and my couples or, uh, or group consultations uh, – those are going to be, you know, limited. It's not right. going to be long-term therapy. It's going to be you guys do most of the work. Mm -hmm. And then I, I meet with you and I just continue to give you a little bit of guidance as, as you take care. Your system learns to take care of itself. Um, and so that's really, uh, that's what I can offer outside of the state. But the main thing that I do outside of the state is train other professionals. Um, mm -hmm. I do a lot of consulting and supervising of other people's caseloads. So like, if somebody was in Texas and wanted to work with me, if they have a licensed behavior analyst in Texas um, or a licensed marriage and family therapist or somebody who can work with them, mm -hmm. I can be a, a supervisor and I can mm -hmm. actually like assist in that case, um, but I'm not the one who's rendering the service, if that okay. makes sense. Yeah. No, that's really cool. You're, you have created a very dynamic practice and reach. Um, okay. And if someone, where can the listeners find you um, like on your social media handles or website? Oh um, yeah. Uh, thank you. Um, so website is empoweredcenter.com. Um, our Facebook page is going to be Facebook dot com slash empowered center stl and then uh my twitter handle is i'm gonna spell it because <laughs> my last name is obnoxious uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh it's at uh itherian n which uh <laughs> which if we were to spell that out is a e t h e r I A N okay. uh, and then a capital N at the end of that. So Itherian N, N for Nicholas. Okay. Um, so yeah. 
uh, obnoxious Twitter handle. Uh, <laughs> you can tell that it's me. Uh, it's a rainbow flag, um, and I'm probably the only person who's calling themselves the sex analyst. Uh, <laughs> probably, I don't know, but <laughs> someday maybe I'll get that blue check mark, and then like you know. Oh, I'm sure you will. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, well, I really enjoyed our chat today. I think we covered a lot. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Yeah. Thank you for joining me at the Psycho Podcast today. I hope that you enjoyed the talk. I want to remind everyone that I do these off of donations only, and you can donate at the Venmo the psycho podcast you can also find upcoming episodes on twitter and facebook as well as my website the psycho if you have any questions feel free to reach out via email or direct message on any of those social media platforms hope to see you guys next time